a Podcast One production. Friday the 6th of June 2003, Jason McCartney was preparing to play game number 182 of his AFL career, but this was no ordinary game. Got a phone call, not exactly sure how it was teed up, got the shock of my life because it was the then Prime Minister, John Howard. This was a game few believed Jason would ever play. And I thought, he's not going to be able to do this. I didn't think he'd be able to play footy. When I saw him in hospital, that was my immediate reaction. This bloke's just lucky to be alive. Mm. This is a story of pain, tragedy and horror. I'll I'll never forget, I looked over my left shoulder and the flames were just roaring up my T-shirt and up my neck, so just panic. It's a story of hope. I just remember on my knees in front of her, holding onto her hands, just saying, you can't give up. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a story of overcoming both for an athlete and a nation. 237 days ago, Jason McCartney's world, that of our country and so many others around this world, exploded literally when the Sari Club and Paddy's Bar in Bali were ripped apart by a bomb. This is a story about giving everything you've got until you reach that one point, that one moment where there is no more to give. I think I've used up every inch of uh, my determination. I'm spent. It's been a tough time, but that's enough for me, mate. Now, mate, I'll just get you to count to ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Perfect, mate. That's Jason McCartney, whose story you're about to hear. Growing up in the country, did you always want to be a, an AFL star? Was that your go? <laughs> I did, actually, uh, from probably as early as I can remember and probably a good memory but it probably goes back to being eight or nine years old growing up in Nil in the Wimmera in Victoria and uh, just loving footy. Was it a nice sort of free and easy lifestyle growing up in the bush? Yeah it was. It, um, just that ability to uh, junior footy training I'd go there was only one night a week but you go over to the senior footy training you'd just be around a footy club. Although Dad wasn't playing then it was a lot earlier when Dad was sort of playing around the area uh, you could just get on your bike and mm. you just go. Let, let mum know I'm going over the footy trainer, the train with the senior group, or when I was a bit younger, obviously, just be around there kicking the footy around. Um, good place to grow up. And the other members of your family? You yeah, so two brothers, uh, Brendan and Stephen. So Brendan's a, a year younger than Stephen's five years younger. Hey, Steve speaking. Steve, how are you? How are you now, mate? So where are you now? <laughs> Uh, just up near Griffith. And that voice, that's Jace's younger brother, Steve, who these days runs his own trucking business. Because when you said Griffith, mate, I thought you might be bringing marijuana back across the border. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, concrete pipes is what Steve was trucking. Steve has to unload. So we'll get back to him shortly. Uh, I played senior footy for Neil when I was 14. Never forget it, Neil versus Japarrett. Dad's brother, uh, Kevin McCartney, was the, the senior coach at the time. Uh, <clears throat> Kevin came to me and said, we really would really like to consider you for a game this weekend and it was excitement and shock and checked off with Dad and it was fine and our under-14s was the mini-league then, I was still eligible and they would play at half-time in the seniors for about 14, 15 minutes. So I'm debuting in the, the Wimmer League seniors that day for the Nil Tigers against your Parrot and as I'm coming off at half-time, it's crossed my mind, do I go in... <laughs> Or do I stay out and play? <laughs> so Jason continued to improve, making rep sides along the way. And in 1990, he was drafted pick four in the national draft. All I heard was the 10 o'clock uh, local news on the radio and it mentioned my name being drafted at Collingwood. 
That's the first time. That's the first time. On the local there's news. No, there's no event then. So it was uh, midweek. I, took, I did take the day off school. So I was, uh, I was confident I might have got picked up. But it was shock horror. I, but the realisation, I think first and foremost when I think back, and that's a long time ago, just the realisation that the dream can actually begin now, become, you play out the reality part. But so it just all hit me. Yeah, you, you'd be leaving home, all that. But it was Collingwood. And I despise, more so because of my mates at Barry for Collingwood probably. <laughs> it was just a massive turn off. Yeah, I was only, oh, I might have been about 11, I think, when all this happened. Um, I think, I can remember the draft when, and then Lee Matthews and Gabby Allen and a couple of other fellas flew down when they when he got drafted to Collingwood. And then, yeah, pretty much after that, he was he was gone down to Melbourne. So do you remember Lee Matthews rolling up to the house? I do remember that. What they, was that um, like? Oh, they flew up. It was probably one of the worst nights that anyone could ever fly in a plane. <laughs> Thunderstorm. Yeah, they flew up to meet Jason and meet Mum and Dad and the rest of us. So, yeah, it was a bit... Um, I don't know, not much, not much like that happens in nil. When I walked in that door uh, for first day of training, it would have been um, early December, and they've just won the flag. Straight away, um, Peter Dacos come over and straight away, nicknamed Bomber, because Rowan Connolly had done these articles in the lead up to the draft and he'd done a feature on me and I was probably looking like maybe uh, getting picked up by Carlton. But uh, my bedroom was an Essendon shrine. I had the, the Duna covers, the pillowcase, Bombers. I had the posters all over the wall, <laughs> Timmy Watson Idol. So, Dakes, that was a, it was a nice uh, icebreaker, that one. In his very first season at the club, aged just 17, Jason made his senior debut versus Hawthorne. There's the second goal for young McCartney. What a debut for the Magpies. In his first couple of years, like many footballers, Jason struggled with homesickness. I did the runner. I just went home. I went back to Neil and I thought, I just, as much as I love it, I just don't know when I'm ready for all this. But he returned, eventually playing 38 games for the Pies over four seasons before being traded to Adelaide. Oh, what a great grab, McCartney. He is settling in nicely here at the Crows. 37 games in three seasons at the Crows and Jace was on the move again, this time to North Melbourne. So There's, a, there's an ability in life that people don't really talk about is uh, to get the best out of yourself with the ability you got. This bloke, now, this bloke would know all about that. His name is Anthony Stevens. Rockham passes to Stevens. He runs to forward 50. Oh, he sums it up, has a go, puts it through. The skipper is on fire. Steve-O, as he's generally known, is a kangaroo's legend. His courage to play with a broken heel in the 1999 grand final brought one Ruse fan, Alan Bennett, to song. They said he'll never play, but champions like Steve-O will always find a way. By the time we left the field, we had it in the bag. The farmer's son from where I helped us win another flag. 
is an ability that, uh, you know, in football, I think, and in life, um, is to actually give the best out of yourself. And, and Jason definitely did that, you know. He left no stone unturned to actually, in his preparation, a little bit like uh, everyone talks about Brent Harvey, um, Jason was exactly the same. There's the majority of people who get into footy like to think they can do a lot more than what they actually can. That voice belongs to Tim Harrington, an assistant coach at North Melbourne when Jason arrived from the Crows. Uh, J-Mac was very different in that regard. He played within his limitations. He was very clear about what he could do on the field and what he couldn't do. Didn't try to be too ostentatious on the field. If he couldn't pick the ball up off the ground, he just booted out of his area. He didn't try to balk and dodge and weave. He knew that he was limited when it came to his athleticism, but he was very disciplined. Playing a man, play his team role, do the things that his teammates expect him to do, and for that reason he was just trusted as a teammate. Everything a team loves about a player, I guess. Yes, yeah, and uh, wasn't any fluke that he actually had the, um, the best clubman named after him the Clubman Award because everything that he did was about the club and his teammates. Jason's best footy came at the Kangas. In his second season, the Roos were home and hosed against Brisbane in a preliminary final. It might be costly. King will get another one. David King, brilliant. With the grand final beckoning, Jason made a small mistake that was to have big consequences. Just really clumsy. I had this terrible habit, especially against bigger forwards, of uh, a bit of a round-arm spoiling technique. I thought I was going to sort of hit and strike across the shoulder, chest, and uh, lo and behold, when Clark took the mark, he didn't land on his feet, did he? <laughs> he dropped to his knees, so that became the nose. On this Good occasion, kick. the ball drops in short. Oh, that should be 50. He's taken. He might get reported. That's got to be 50 he metres. He reported, he is. But can't be reported for striking Keating. I knew straight away. Oh, I knew straight away, especially when he ran off and he took the towel away and there was a little bit of uh, little bit of bleeding going on. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. So I, your heart, oh, it's just like a dagger straight away. You knew. He took the mark. He's got the mark. He's actually landed. And, oh, that's a solid bump. And, uh, gee, it's not the sort of thing you want to be doing in a preliminary final, is it? Late in the quarter, late in the, uh, the, the game. In the when, last the, quarter, when the game's over, too. Five goals up. What does that tell you? Well, I think it was a very undisciplined act. Just everything goes running through your mind. The, the starting out, the trying to get drafted, play a game, but now you've you finally, through three clubs, you've actually now become a, a solid contributor regularly at a really good footy club. That's all you want to do. You've been out there and lost the year before. You wanted to make amends for that, and now, uh, through my own fault, it was going to be taken away. So... Hard to come to grips with. In a major blow for the Kangaroos, key backman Jackson McCartney was suspended last night by the Tribunal for that prelim final hit on Brisbane's Clark Keating. A four-game ban means McCartney will miss Saturday's grand final against the Blues. Tim Harrington again. Every single person that would speak to him would have spoken about that. He would remind it of it day in, day out. And just his own thoughts would have weighed heavily on his mind. As the time ticks down and the Kangas have won a fourth premiership, well done, Dennis Pagan. You deserve everything you've got today, and so does your club. And when the siren sounded on that grand final? Yeah, uh, emotional. Really emotional. Like, you're out there, and the, once again, the people around the club, the other players, support staff, the well-wishes support was unbelievable, and I'll never, I'll be forever grateful for that. But part of it was the backslapping. you're a part of it, 
And you, you are to a certain extent, but you're not out there on the day. I'm in the suit. Um, probably for me after that point in time, although it was a struggle, I made a conscious decision that uh, hopefully we do get that opportunity moving forward and I can't let this hold me back. This will be something that I can look back with disappointment at the end of my career, but I can't let it storm me now. So oh. I was able to come back the next year and, and probably have my best season of AFL footy. Um, but we got beaten in a prelim. <laughs> and that was the, the closest sort of ever got again. It's now 2001 and Jason is an integral part of the North Melbourne backline and has just played his 150th game versus the Crows in Adelaide. Kangaroos out on the ground, about to break the banner and led by Jason McCartney in his 150th game this afternoon. Jason's life was about to change. Uh, those days you could actually go out for a drink after the game. Uh, we're out in a bar. <laughs> uh, it was um, out one night. I was out for my brother's 21st, actually, and out with a group of friends. That's Narissa, who's about to meet Jace. Uh, to be honest, it was on the dance floor. Was it? <laughs> yes. Was on the he, dance floor. Were he you was, both good out there? Well, yeah, he was busting some moves. And all I just, uh, all I really recall is um, thinking, oh, Great, let's have a dance. And so just started dancing, yeah. What was it about Narissa? Just really down to earth. Oh, uh, he probably wooed me, really. Did he? Yes. He was a wooer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, sent a lot of flowers. He rang a lot. Um, he flew me to Melbourne and he flew to Adelaide and, yeah, he was very romantic, so. Was the proposal as romantic as you would hope as a young lady? Uh, if I look back and be honest... Probably not as romantic as I would like to experience now. <laughs> Had it all lined up, how I was going to go about it, and oh, it was a dribbling mess. <laughs> Were you? Had the table in the back corner, lighting <laughs> low. <laughs> he was extremely nervous and panicked, like he seemed quite panicked and nervous to tell me or ask me whatever it was and I was just thinking, he just got back from a holiday with mates and so I was thinking, this, this, isn't, this isn't sort of looking good. I think I might just grab my jacket and I was kind of reminding myself where my jacket was on the back of my chair and that I'll just grab my jacket and leave if any of this is bad news. But not that I could predict it was going to be bad news but just his behaviour was, he was so nervous and he couldn't and I just said, just say it. And then I just said, whisper it in my ear. And so he leant over and whispered it in my ear and I didn't believe him because it was so early into the relationship. And I looked down and he'd slipped the, the ring box under, um, underneath me as he was whispering in my ear. And I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, it all blossomed from there. <laughs> I love a good love story. Yeah. So with a beautiful fiance, a wedding to plan and a footy career still rolling along, Jason and good mate and teammate Mick Martin headed to Bali for an end of season wind down. They arrived on October the 12th, 2002. Just a note here before we go any further, Jason's description of what took place that night is detailed and it's frightening and sitting across from him at times it was difficult to listen to. Personally, looking back at the news stories of the day was upsetting to say the least. Still to this day, what happened and continues to happen around the world, makes no sense at all. So many people were affected and still are by what happened in Bali. I've done my best to tread as gently as possible through this atrocity by letting Jason do the talking here. It's his story. 
we had a we had dinner, a couple of drinks, and what what will live with me forever? The macaroni bar is on the same side or the restaurant same side as where the Sari Club was, and we're walking towards Sari Club, and I just made the call that too early too early like we'll get in there you can't hear like let's let's go across the road it's a good spot at least we'll be able to have a conversation so we went across the road to Paddy's bar and oh, look we're only in there probably 15-20 minutes and obviously that was the first that was a suicide bomb attack which was the first of about three or four blasts in that area that night so Yeah, you you never forget it. Like standing there, casual conversation. Uh, I'll never forget. There's a group of guys behind us, and they having Mick and I sort of looked at each other and, and smiled because you could tell they were on end of season trip. We'd just been there a few days earlier. They had the Hawaiian shirts. I think they had an ironing board, pretending it was a surfboard. <laughs> and uh, while she's looking at it and smiling, next minute just this this massive explosion and like I've never heard anything like it just perforated eardrums instantly the flash I thought straight away everything's running through your mind so quickly but I, I thought it was straight away I thought oh those guys must have had some firecrackers or something mucking around because you can get you can get hold of that over there so that's what I'm trying to process because the flash I was blinded by the flash and now I couldn't open my eyes and then when I did open my eyes I um well, the first thing was yeah, the sheer force too, and that's what I felt like. Uh, it's firecrackers, or someone had a gun, because it felt like this cannon ball of fire just hit me. And I realised later it was that it hit me, but it was from the suicide bomber, who we had no idea was only only sort of five metres away. So, so when I could finally, the first fears were I'm blinded, vision finally returns, and it was only seconds, but it felt like forever and a day. Then you see the darkness and the fire, uh, people on fire. That's what the, what the hell happened? Big bomb, blew out the Sari Club, blew out this place. What was it? Did they Big know? bomb. It was a bomb. Yeah, me. This is the most packed place in Bali. I'll never forget, I looked over my left shoulder and the flames were just roaring up my t-shirt and up my neck, so just panic panic stations from there they're just everyone says well what goes through your mind in that situation well, there's a few things but the first one is uh, sheer panic and <laughs> thoughts of getting out of there as quickly as possible but the other thing and I would guarantee it would happen for all of us you think about your mates now I, I thought about Mick straight away because he's right next to me and um, you know when I reached across and I, I felt I realised it's not Mick it, big enough, not hairy enough, not, not ugly enough. He'll kill me one day, Mick. But um, it happened to be a, a girl who was in a group behind us who we actually we actually knew from Melbourne anyway. And uh, you think of that, and it wouldn't matter if that was your worst enemy. If you could help someone, you could. And at the time, I was very lucky uh, that myself and it was um, Samantha, we had each other... Um, to help and we had it probably about 15, 20 metre distance to cover and we got two thirds of the way and I just thinking in my mind, I chase how clumsy because we stumbled to the ground again. But the fact we stumbled to the ground, the first part was we couldn't see that well. <laughs> the fire and everything, desperation to get out and we probably tripped over other people too. But the second part was the main thing, 
perforated eardrums. We couldn't even hear some 25 metres up the road opposite the Sari Club was where the car bomb explosion. So the, the sequence was suicide bomber where we are, cause as much carnage as possible, force everyone out on the street near this other club, then bang. So as we're trying to make our way out, the sheer force of that blast just blasts us back in the building. So... So when I got out the front, there's, there's then um, Samantha who were helping each other try and get out. No, no sign of it. I'm just on my own. And I think it's maybe because it's a, it's a one-way street there. I'm so, so grateful. I never looked at all to the right. Thank goodness. Cause, so I didn't know what had happened at Sarah Club. I just didn't see because I just remember looking at this building ablaze and tumbling down and I'm just thinking about Mick, Pete and I've just met Gary and I thought no chance to ever see them again and um, then Mick appeared and the big fella he just took control like he uh, straight away I don't know how went so random he's standing right next to me and he had some minor welts to his head uh, the big fella had the button up shirt on the buttons had been blown off <laughs> the, the, the hair is singed on one side of his chest and it the perforated eardrums as well, but compared to me, he was he was in good nick, and he just um, he dragged me up the road as far away as possible, and he was trying to get you know some transport, get out of here. Now those streets are um, chaotic, chaotic at the best of times. After mm. what had transpired, there's no chance. <laughs> But he, he got a, mal, a Balinese motorcyclist and he got hold of one and he threw me on the back and he just said, we're staying at the Hard Rock. He said, get him back to the Hard Rock Hotel. Mick said, I'll be on the next one behind me. Mick eventually got Jason into a quasi-ambulance. I remember in that van, I wasn't strapped in. <laughs> and I'm sliding around the back and, like, obviously badly burnt, so every time I hit the sides of that van, it was painful. They were dropped at a local hospital. <clears throat> and my body's virtually just jumping off the stretcher. It was just a shock. Um, and I, I remember seeing a little bit either side and it wasn't great, but Mick just hanging there, mate, hanging there. There's others worse. Didn't quite understand why at the time you could say that, but now I do. Because he saw that crowd of 20 or 30, 40 that swelled over 200. So, so finally, I was moved in to be operated on, and I just, I just looked up, and there's four Balinese doctors, and what can you do? It was left to them. So, I removed some burnt uh, tissue, which found out later on there's a fair bit. But the other thing was uh, the shrapnel. So, the makeup of that that blast. They pack it with nails. It's a bar. It picks up glass and metal in its wake. So I, I lot my lower back and legs, and they're removing as much of that. Uh, but it had to be a quick operation. And then out you go because so many others were waiting. News of the attack was now breaking in Australia on the 10 Network. Without whose help, we couldn't have told this story. Popular nightclubs and the Sari Club, as always, was packed with Western tourists, many Australians, when the blast ripped it apart, killing or badly injuring hundreds of Saturday night revellers. I don't want to be too direct at all with you, so it's probably just best you're 
you talk about what you're comfortable talking about with. I sure. think it's the best way to do it. He's in Bali and you're in Australia. Yeah. How do you find out what's going on? It's actually quite, you know, I, th- I think you block things out when it's quite traumatic. And I, you know, I can't quite piece it all together even today, but um, it was a phone call, full call from Mick Martin's wife. And she said, you know, have you heard the news? Have you, you know, seen any TV? And I said, no. And she said, oh, there's been a bombing. And it was all quite hard to comprehend. And my girlfriends around me at the time were very supportive. And, you know, we straight away turned on the TV and the radio. I remember doing that. But then as soon as we saw, you know, the graphic images on on the screen, we just immediately, well, they immediately turned it off. And then um, I think the hardest thing would have been to call Jan. Sorry, I get emotional now. (laughs) Um... And have to tell her. So, um, oh, sorry. Don't be sorry. That's Jason's mum. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, dear. Um, and I actually couldn't tell her in the end. I, I think what I can recall, um, I actually put my girlfriend on the phone and because I just couldn't, she kind of, she didn't believe me and she just was quite shocked. And so then my girlfriend had to finish the rest of the conversation to her and then, and then I called my own mum. <laughs> I was at home on the Sunday morning and I just remember a, a car coming in the driveway um, what, fairly fast up my driveway and um, next thing a dad's banging at the door and um, he walked in and he said, something's wrong, something's happened in Bali, a bomb's gone off. And um, yeah, I was sort of a bit stunned really, I just yeah, didn't really know what to think and then no one was real sure what had happened and it was just a whole day of not knowing because we couldn't get hold of him or anything and yeah it was just it wasn't a good day at all yeah we kind of flicked the tv on just to see or get more of an idea of what happened and the first pictures i've seen it's just yeah we just thought we would probably won't hear from him again sort of thing after seeing that so you thought he was probably dead yeah pretty much yeah yep all their mates got together and there was one missing they went back and climbed over bodies and body parts to get their mate out. Many of the victims were on footy team holidays, including North Melbourne's Jason McCartney and Mick Martin, who suffered burns. Did you understand the dire situation you were in medically yourself? No, not that time. No, no idea. I, I felt... I just kept feeling like the the excruciating sounds coming out of it. And I, I don't know, once again, I was in this little office area and there was only about four people in there. I've seen footage of others. It was just like mm. a, an airport hangar where they were everywhere. And it sounded like there's others that may be a lot worse. And um, what I've learned a lot about burns now is obviously infection is, is a major issue. And unfortunately, they didn't have enough dressing to dress mine or probably many other people's wounds. So those wounds really lay open and exposed to to infection. Where you're in a you're in that climate and it's an, an unsterile sort of environment that 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 became an issue later on. Just clam it over walls, pull people, push people. It's just so overwhelming, and the fire was just oh, unbelievable. Hospitals were hopelessly under-equipped to cope with the shocking casualties amid immediate fears this was a terrorist attack. With the Balinese hospitals completely overrun, it was decided to fly the injured to Darwin in northern Australia. When the evacuation was set in process, I was going to be one of the early ones flown out, but Mm. there was a bit of confusion there and um, I I probably thought because I felt like 
I didn't know how bad I was and I had some comfort there that maybe others were in a bit worse shape. So I waited. If I had my time again and I knew the extent of my injuries, uh, I would have been getting on as quickly as possible. But I just... People call that a heroic thing yeah, to do. Yeah, stupid, heroic. I'm sure you're not even thinking at the time, to be honest. I just thought, like I was in discomfort, but there's a couple of people, and I don't even know, I don't think one of them, or, or maybe even two, made it. But just the, the constant screams of pain, and they didn't have anyone around them. Jason eventually left Bali on the Monday morning, airlifted to a Darwin hospital. So then you see him for the first time in Darwin? Yes, yes, that was very, um, that was quite a shocking experience because we were looking around the hospital for him, um, myself, Jason's dad and his brother, Stephen, and then we walked into a room where the nurse said that he was and we walked in there and basically didn't recognise him. And There was two people to a room and I, from what I can recall, I think he was the first one near the door and I said, how you going, mate, and went to walk straight past him didn't even recognise him. Why didn't you recognise him? Oh, I just, with all the burns and everything and the way, um, I guess the way people blow up and after being burnt, like his face and everything was sort of the size of like a watermelon pretty much and, yeah, just didn't even look like him at all. So at what stage do you realise, hang on, that that's my brother? Oh, when he spoke, I looked back and I thought, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I didn't really know what to say to him. I just sort of stood there and stared at him. So, it's, um, yeah, it's pretty confronting. Oh, he looked like a balloon. His head was huge. It was, it just reminded me of, a, you know, a really large bowling ball and his entire body was just, was he was just a, like a Michelin man. It was, yeah, it was quite shocking to see. Yeah, his condition was deteriorating without us realising. An emergency helicopter waiting at Essendon Airport to take one critically ill bomb survivor directly to the Alfred Hospital. Jason McCartney was the most seriously injured of the seven victims aboard a Hercules aircraft from Darwin, flown to Melbourne this morning for specialist treatment. So far we have received one patient with uh, extensive burns. He has over 50%. Now, unfortunately, at this stage, Jason was deteriorating at the time through news reports like the one you just heard from the 10 Network and through explanations from medical professionals, Australians were beginning to learn the awful facts about burns victims, that they get a lot worse before they get better. Like so many of the injured, Jason was facing this horrible truth. And I probably thought this great sense of relief, uh, the pain was bearable, um, not knowing about burn injuries. I'm now thinking, well, I'm on the home stretch. I'm... I'm home, I'm at the Alfred, I'll be fine. And But that probably next 24 to 48 hours was, was the big struggle for me because straight into intensive care for the multiple skin grafts. So that's when I found out I had burns to 50% of my body. Um, so dealing with that, um, the infection was an issue, but beyond that and all the operations, the biggest thing was I was really struggling with my breathing. I just couldn't do it on my own. And to that's, breathe? Yeah, so that's when... This help with breathing, I had no idea. Jason's fiance flew to Darwin yesterday when he was evacuated from Bali and she's now maintaining her bedside vigil here at the Alfred. Do you contemplate that you might lose someone in that situation? Mm. 
or, or how do you deal with that situation when things aren't certain? Yeah, I always um, look to the word hope because I don't ever recall um, accepting that we would possibly lose Jason or even thinking that we would um, because you always have hope. I remember experiencing Jan, you know, collapsing at one point when we were told that night that, you know, we could lose him and that he's... Um, he's he was declining rapidly after a major operation. Jan is Jason's mum. And I just, um, I just never thought that, you know, we would lose him. I just, I didn't feel it in my body and I didn't believe it in my heart. So, um, yeah, but I remember, although possibly I think maybe um, the fact that I had to help Jan through that night made me be strong because I just remember on my knees in front of her holding onto her hands just saying, you can't give up. You have to send all your energies to him and, you know, give him strength and hope. You know, you can't give up. So I, that's, yeah, it's one thing that I do recall. When they initially told us that he, he could um, possibly not get through that evening, I do recall just feeling my blood rush from my head to my feet and just feeling like I was going to pass out, but then something else just took over and I thought, this can't be happening. So, and then when I saw Jan so distraught, I was just like, we just have to send all our positive thoughts and energies to him right now and we have to hope. So, yeah, I think I probably was about to fall in a heap, but refocused and just didn't, just held on to hope. The hope obviously worked. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> so what do you say to a fellow that you love when he comes out of a, a coma? Oh, it probably wasn't um, an easy process, really, because then as soon as he did wake and the days after that, he was having hallucinations and, you know, um, you know, really bad dreams. So it probably wasn't that perfect, you know, movie moment that we all envisage. It was um, a very gradual and um, difficult process, really. Yeah, but it was exciting to see him awake, of course. Doctors from the Burns unit were with McCartney throughout the day and say his condition is critical but stable. So when did you see your own physical state? It would have been maybe four or five days after the coma. And what did you see? Oh, just a mummy. Just a mummy and lost what I lose about 10, 12 kilos, like really gaunt and drawn. So um, it was amazing then, though, that it, what kicked in was just, well, my working life goes back to all it had been was being a elite athlete in AFL footy, so everything just came to the fore, like that discipline about, righto, got to set some goals. Um, and I remember getting a little whiteboard put up in the... ICU and trying to map things out because you're so used to the structure. Um, and at that stage, the biggest thing on my mind was nothing to do with footy. It was the wedding was was booked, ready to go for the 14th of December. So I think the time frame might have been, are oh, we talking two months after the, those terrorist attacks? So, so that was the ultimate objective. I was happy to postpone it. Absolutely. It was just... Too, too much to think about all at once, really. Yeah, and I was happy to postpone it to make sure that he was 100% well, that we didn't have to rush decisions because it's such a special day in your lives. But um, he was determined, and I remember having a, 
conversation with um, his physio and counsellor at the time and, and they both said, well, um, you know, you really probably need to proceed with this because he's really concerned that if you don't get married, you might not hang around. And I was really shocked to hear that. I thought, wow, geez, he must have known some shallow people in his life if he thinks that, uh, you know, I would, you know, find an opportunity to leave just because now he's a burn survivor. I got told that um, I'd be in hospital for eight to ten weeks, so I need to postpone the wedding. So that was, that was shattering. Everyone sort of saying, oh, we can put it off, we can put it off, and he's like, nah, it's going to happen on that date, so... And he, um, he couldn't even walk when he came out of the coma. They had to teach him how to walk again because he'd been pretty much laying in bed for that long and lost every bit of muscle off his body, so... Just little things, uh, to be able to stand up for the first time, to walk with a frame, to, to get to the physio department and hang on for grim life on the, uh, on the walker while it ticked over at probably its slowest rate, to then progress to uh, walking unassisted and then the time trials, which I was used to around Princess Park with North Melbourne. <laughs> Mine was uh, walking up the passage at the physio department at the Alfred and um, for two minutes and they'd calculate how many metres I'd walk <laughs> and things like that. Um, pin-loaded bench press machine, a pec deck, um, jumped on it, excited, went to lift it, couldn't lift it, thought someone may have left it loaded under, you know, five or six plates. I think it was under two. That's when you realise how much uh, strength you'd lost. But just started just ticking away with it uh, twice a day. It gave me structure. Um, the, uh, the infection was, was a bit of an ongoing battle, but the issues around that too, obviously the, the, the bathing. Um, so in ICU, it was a, a portable bath. And I'll never forget the day that two of the nurses bathed me up there. I reckon it took four hours and that was excruciating and they must see so much and go through so much. I don't know how they do it. They're amazing. But four I think, hours. Yeah, because I was just in so much pain. But with each little uh, milestone along the way, you tick off. It's just amazing because then um, the real, reality of it all was you build belief and the hope of making it to the wedding day, you realise, I'm going to be able to do this. I'm actually, I'm going to be able to get out of here. And I got out in... I think it was just under four weeks in the end. Was the wedding everything you would work towards? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, look, I'd hope our wedding days would be, but that was that was just different because of circumstances. Um, that support that uh, Narissa had received by by so many, m- most of them were were there. We got married back in Millicent, southeast South Australia, where Narissa grew up, and you know, important people they played an upbringing out. Um, played a part in our upbringing as kids but they were the ones that provided so much strength for her and, and both our families when they needed it so to have all them there and it, um, yeah, it, was, it was amazing I remember just being so nervous just thinking everything that we'd been through and really not having a break in between you know what we'd just been through and now we're you know, getting married still on the same date um, it, yeah, it was one big roller coaster ride, and, and then there was that beautiful ending, which was great, but it was emotional too. So, um, yeah, it was a really, really special day. What's your memories of the wedding, mate? Oh, a bit sketchy. The, the first part of it was all right, but after that, I don't remember too much of it at the reception. <laughs> <laughs> and just once again, it comes back to, the, to be able to share it with so many really wonderful people. Um, and I'll, yeah, probably 
I would have rambled on a lot in my speech. I suppose it's moments like that, it actually, it all just comes flooding back for the very first time of, you'd put it behind what had happened to focus on the positivity of moving forward. And then when you get there, it's that time of reflection. And that was quite emotional. So, what did you reflect on? Just how lucky I was to be alive. Yeah, and to still, and to be there that day. That was the main thing. That's the conclusion of part one, The Moment, Jason McCartney. In part two, Jason begins the long road back to playing footy.